Hello, everyone. This is Rick Thomas, and we're doing Life Over Coffee. Thank you so much for joining me. This is episode 425, and I titled this episode, Seven Ways Biblical Counselors Can Innovate. Now, the reason I've titled it that way is because a couple of episodes back, I, it was 423, I said that I, I believe biblical counseling is in a precarious place at this point in, in history, that we have passed our prime or we are passing our prime. And I gave four reasons that I believe that we're in trouble and we need to talk about these things. And one of, the, one of the reasons that I said is that there is a lot of redundancy in the biblical counseling movement. There is a lack of, of innovation. Uh, biblical counseling started off very well, circa 1970, and it really was just innovative. And, and there were some great thinkers like David Pallison, my historical hero on sanctification, and other people came along, and the biblical counseling movement was really developing. But from my view over the past couple of years, that innovation has flattened out, and that was one of the reasons that I believe that biblical counseling has passed or is passing its prime, and we have to talk about these issues. Well, there were some folks that took issue with what I said, and in fact, there was a group of them on Twitter who said that no biblical counseling is actually quite innovative, and they gave their reasons why it was innovative. And as you looked at some of their reasons, some of them said it explicitly, others not. Uh, but as you looked at their reasons, they say we are innovating because we are embracing secular psychologies. Uh, we are uh, integrationists. One of them said that in a tweet. That integration is uh, innovative is what they were saying. And I was reading that and thinking, well, if that's what you mean by innovation, well, then that affirms the point. We're not innovating at all. And that's when I did episode 424. Well, both of those episodes were shedding negative light on a problem. And so I thought, well, you know, it would be good to come back with another episode. So this is like a trilogy now, 425. And I want to, in this episode, talk with as much clarity as I can that biblical counseling can be innovative, and here are seven ways for me, here's seven ways for you to diagnose yourself, for us to assess ourselves and to see how well we are doing, and if we meet uh, this assessment, this criteria of assessing ourselves appropriately and maturing in uh, biblical counseling, then we can uh, continue and move into the future, and we can be innovative. But there is a tension in some people's mind as to what innovation is. Is innovation embracing the culture, or is innovation digging deep and mining God's Word? And so those are the two competing arguments, and I want to talk about them here in episode 425. Again, I've titled it Seven Ways Biblical Counselors Can Innovate, and I will get into those ways in just a moment. But what I would like to do at this point is I want to put two words uh, in your mind. One word is deep, and the other word is wide. And so we're going to juxtapose those two words, deep and wide, but I am saying that they're also antithetical, that they are, they are opposites. There are two competing ideas about innovation. Now, I'm sure you listen to this and you probably say, well, there's more ideas about that as far as innovation is concerned, and I'm sure you can add to my list. But I want to take 
just two, and I, I, I'm titling them Deep or Wide. And so one of these ways that people think about innovating in biblical counseling is by broadening the scope of what biblical counseling means. And so they are going wide. Now, we call these folks integrationists because, or, and they might not be integrationists, but they're sympathetic to integrative ideas. And so they're beholding to, I call this the annexing principle. Uh, I've called it eminent domain. Uh, it's a real estate term where you just take over properties that are outside of your property. And so it's an annexing principle. It, it is wide. And so it's widening the scope. These folks study secular psychologies. They embrace in part DSM ideas. Uh, you may hear some of them talk about scientism or materialism, among other concepts whose ideologies, they do not align with scripture. And so that's what I mean by this wide understanding of what innovation is. And I say that's not innovation at all. That's a little leaven that will end up leavening the entire lump. And then there's another idea that is not wide, but it is deep. Now, biblical counselors hold to this, and I call this a sufficiency of Scripture view that doesn't look like spoiling the Egyptians to bring the best of their ideas into our hermeneutic. You see, we think less about annexing the culture's philosophies, and we think more about deepening our understanding and practice of the Bible. And so those are the two words, deep or wide. You can't have one you can't have both. You have one or the other. And so as you think about your understanding of biblical counseling, do you want to grow deep in the uh, the understanding and practice of, of biblical psychology, or do you want to behold to the annexing principle uh, where you're bringing in ideas that are outside the scope of Scripture? Now, biblical counselors are not unaware of the insights of the culture. I read the culture, seems like all the time. I have to study the culture on two fronts. One, technology, because our ministry is highly technological, and so I have to keep up with cultural trends. I also have to study psychology, because psychology is just trying to beat down the door of every human's heart uh, to bring their worldview into how we take care of each other, as we're seeing now with transgenderism going on in our culture. So we are not unaware of the insights of the culture. But simultaneous to that, we realize that we have yet to scratch the surface or mind the depths of what God's Word teaches us about psychology. And I'm defining psychology as the study of the soul, psyche, soul, logos, the word concerning, or the study of. And so the word psychology is, is the study of the soul. And so we can't innovate if innovation means broadening the aperture of the Bible. But if you mean that we can deepen our understanding of God's word, then there's lots of innovation yet to come. And so in this episode, I want to share with you seven essentials to becoming deeper, innovative, biblical counselor, while staying inside the boundaries of a sufficiency view. And so the key idea here, the Bible has clear boundaries, very clear boundaries, and we cannot go beyond it. 
plundering the world's notions and ideas. But Christians aim to mature in what it means to apply God's Word deeply, profoundly, and practically in our lives. And so here's the big question that, I, that you can think about as I go through these seven things. Are you innovating? And then you can assess yourself by these seven things that I want to list to you. And so assess yourself in these seven areas and ask your question, are you innovating? All right, so number one, and this is not necessarily in an order of priority, but it's just a list. And again, you can go to episode 425 and you can read this list if you wish. And so number one, presupposition and worldview. I'm putting those things together. If your starting point, meaning your presupposition, and so you can think of your presupposition like uh, you're on a track and you're doing a 100-meter dash, and, and you're, before you ever start, like your starting blocks, before you ever begin, before you do anything, say anything, you have a presupposition before you ever say or do anything. If your presupposition, your starting point, and then your filter, I'm calling that a worldview, a filter, are God's word, well, then you're safe. Before we ever say anything, before we ever do anything, your presupposition is the sufficiency of Scripture worldview. And then when you come out of those starting blocks, you're moving through the filter of God's Word. You have a sufficiency of Scripture worldview. And so if, you're, if you have a sufficiency worldview, a sufficiency presupposition, then you're in a good spot to move forward in thinking about how to deepen your understanding and practice of God's Word. However, there are many sincere biblical counselors who do not have the awareness to know if they are changing presuppositionally or if they're changing their worldviews. And that's why this is such an essential conversation to have. And so here's the question to point number one. Again, point number one is presupposition and worldview. The question is, do you have a sufficiency of Scripture presupposition, a sufficiency of Scripture worldview? Now, that's a close-ended question, and I realize that, and so I want to follow up by asking, how do you know? Who affirms your perspective? Or who, who dares to be honest with you? Now, that's an important question because sometimes we can ask our assessment questions of other people who don't have the courage, they struggle with fear of man, or whatever the motivations are, I don't know. But they do not give you an honest answer. And so you really need a friend that will challenge you and say, hey, uh, do I have a, a scriptural presupposition and worldview? And so do you? How do you know? Who would affirm that? Uh, perspective about you. And so number one, you can be innovative if you have a sufficiency presupposition and a sufficiency worldview. Number two is the difference between a theorist and a practitioner. There is a difference between those who talk about counseling but has little experience in doing the work of counseling. And sometimes that can really just be two separate worlds that never commingle. I remember I was in Novi, Michigan a number of years ago, and I was talking to a uh, professor at the University of Michigan who happens to write uh, one of the primary psychology books for colleges around the universities around the country. And he asked me, he's a secularist, he's not a Christian, he said, are, are you a clinician? Uh, are you a biblical counselor? I said, yeah. And uh, he said, uh, no, I don't, like, I don't like doing that. And I thought, that's an interesting position to take. And so 
he teaches psychology, and he's got an excellent gig. He writes the primary psychology book uh, that universities use around the country, and and he told me, he said, every time I finish an edition, and I think at that time he was like on the 16th edition, and so every time he finishes an edition, he starts writing another one, and then when he finishes it, they all buy the book, and then he starts another one, and so uh, it's an excellent side hustle for a professor in secular psychology. But his point was that, no, I don't like doing clinical work. I'd rather talk about it. I'd rather write about it, but... That could be a problem. There's a difference between theorist, the academic, academic person, and practitioner. It's like people without babies giving parenting advice based on their academic studies or observation skills. Some things that they say will be helpful, but there is a recognizable gap between theory and practice. And so the question is, are you a practitioner? of biblical counseling, because if you're just a theorist primarily, that you can talk about it, but you're not doing it, well, that can really muddy up the waters. Malcolm Gladwell, and maybe his book, Outliers, I don't remember because I've gone through so many of them, but he talks about 10,000 hours, which you have probably heard of, and that is an arbitrary time for proficiency in any discipline. Again, it's arbitrary, But the point is, it takes a long time to be proficient in biblical counseling based on training, academia, and practice. And so we will not be innovative if we lean more into being a theorist but not a practitioner. And I'm afraid that uh, some people uh, within the biblical counseling movement have not been doing the work of biblical counseling. And again, that makes a recognizable gap. Number three is classical and original knowledge. Now, if you go to episode 425, I have a a link here, and I would encourage you to click on it, and it's like a, I don't remember, a 20-minute video uh, on classical and original knowledge. I talk about this often. I talk about it in our school uh, because it's, it's important. Classical knowledge is what you learn in the academy. Absolutely essential. Original knowledge is the ability to apply academic rigor, customizing it to the unique person in a unique situation. Excellent illustration of this is John 3, John 4. Uh, From an academic perspective, Jesus, the classical knowledge would say, Jesus would say to Nicodemus, you must be born again. To the woman at the well, you must be born again. But they had the same problem. The academy would say that both of these individuals are unregenerate. They need Christ, John 3, John 4. That's classical understanding of a situation. Original knowledge is taking what the Bible says and customizing it to the unique person in front of you. That is a skill that comes with much practice. And so if you read the dialogue of Jesus talking to Nicodemus and Jesus talking to the woman at the well, original knowledge He applied it in two radically different ways, even though both of them had the exact same problem. Unfortunately, some biblical counselors apply the Bible without contextualizing it to the individual. Some of the worst examples of this, as you know, and you're probably already thinking of it when somebody says, you just need to trust God. Academically, yes, that is true. 
But imagine if that person has a horrendous, had a horrendous relationship with their father. They struggle with authority structures. Uh, they conflate the word earthly father with heavenly father. And now you're telling them to trust God. That is very simplistic. It's taking truth that is timeless. Trust God. But it's not practicalizing it in the individual's life because it's not original knowledge because you don't understand the person that is sitting in front of you. And so things like trust God or we know all things work together for good, again, timeless truths. But practical soul care, it requires us to apply the Bible that offers more than classical hope to the individual, again, it is a skill, and if we can't grow in that skill, then we will lose our innovation. And so the question is, has God given you the keen insight to practicalize His Word into the lives of others? And so point number three, classical knowledge, original knowledge. Number four is knowledge and newborns. Now, this is getting back to Gladwell's 10,000 hours thing, or what Peter said as newborn babes, we desire the sincere milk of the word. Uh, but as what the Hebrew writer said in, in chapter five, by this time, you should be eating meat. And we, so we know that there's a difference between mature understanding of God's Word and newborns, and so we have, to, we have to understand it, we have to give allowance to it, and we have to honestly assess ourselves uh, to see where we are. Are we maturing? Are we drinking and eating God's Word? Though anybody can say, come see a man, that's what the woman at the well did in John 4, after our first introduction to Christ, it takes years of study to counsel the Word. And so there is a difference between knowledge and newborns. We have to uh, understand this, and we have to carefully look in the mirror and to see where we are on the maturation scale. And so the question is, have you had training in God's Word where it's rich and dense? It, It is a rich word, a dense filter through which you push people's problems in order for them to find help. If we don't have a rich and dense understanding of God's Word, well, then when people's problems come through that filter, if it's full of holes, then we will not be able to give them uh, the, wealth and the wealth and the depth of God's Word. And so there is a difference, point number four, between knowledge and newborns. Number five is Scripture and pneumatic. Both of these are important. Part of stepping into the skill of original knowledge, customizing your care to the person in front of you, is relying on the Spirit of God to eliminate your mind. I'm talking about prayer here. The Spirit of God eliminating your mind with the proper, recognizing that it's also subjective. There's a subjective element to what I'm saying, and I recognize that. But Scripture and pneumatic are essential. And so if you want to step into the skill of original knowledge, to be able to customize God's Word in an applicable way in somebody's life, not only do you have to have a rich and dense filter of God's Word, you also have to rely on the Spirit to eliminate your mind with proper insight to help the person. And so there is a built-in dependency built-in dependency 
in biblical counseling where we recognize that we don't have all the answers, but we trust that God will use us in proportion to his desire by eliminating our minds. Now, this is one of the things that sets us apart from scientism, for example, uh, secular psychologies, because they believe they have all the answers, and biblical counselors will say, I don't know. There is a built-in dependency on the Spirit of God eliminating me to give me extraordinary otherworldly insight so that I can customize classical knowledge in a original way to this person sitting in front of me. And so there is a humility in the biblical counseling department recognizing that we are dependent creatures. And so the question is, what does it mean to walk in the Spirit as you walk alongside another person? We teach our students that there are two key concepts in counseling, and they are prayer and prophecy. And what I mean by that is prayer begging God during the counseling session, oh, Holy Spirit, eliminate my mind. Help me to see what I cannot see, to know what I cannot know. Help me to perceive, to discern what is going on here. And so prayer is a huge aspect of biblical counseling. And then prophecy, and what I mean by prophecy is just speaking forth God's word as you understand it. It's alliterated. I like it. It rhymes. Uh, Prayer and prophecy, so don't get bent out of shape. I'm not talking about uh, some of the uh, harms of of charismatic teaching, but relying on God and then speaking His truth is absolutely essential. And so the key elements of Scripture and pneumatos are absolutely vital uh, to innovate and to continue to mature in biblical counseling. Then number six is gift mix. There is a uniqueness to the craft of biblical counseling in formalized biblical counseling. Yes, I am aware that that everybody is the disciple maker. Praise God. Everybody can counsel, as we like to say. Actually, I don't like saying that because it connotes some heavy language that's really probably not helpful at this point uh, in the day. It would be better to say, it'd be better to go back to the New Testament and say everybody can disciple according to their gifting. But when it comes to formalized biblical counseling, there is a uniqueness to the craft. And so we have to understand the counselor's gift mix. Because as the degree of difficulty rises, the gifting must elevate to meet the complexity of the problems. And so what is an appropriate gift mix for a formalized biblical counselor? I won't give you an exhaustive list here. I'll just mention a few things. One is analytical ability. That would be an essential gift. The ability to analyze through the hermeneutic of God's Word that soul. And so the study of the soul is the study of the soul through the filter, the presuppositional worldview, hermeneutic of God's Word, analytical ability is essential. Another is perseverance. If you don't have perseverance, creates a sturdy soul who can listen to complicated problems because every counseling situation is, is sad. Every counseling situation is complicated to some degree. It takes a lot of perseverance. We teach our students that, you know, you should be counseling no more than, you know, 12 to 16 hours a week because you can't counsel 40 hours a week for 40 years. I mean, we don't have that perseverance. Nobody does. Uh, It will wear on you and there will be definite fallout in your own soul and in your own relationships. But in order to counsel 
at a formalized biblical counseling level, part of that gift mix, analytical ability and perseverance, also courage. Courage to keep from overcaring, stepping into their story, taking up an offense, uh, and, and not staying on the outside, so to speak, being with them but not in their story, where you're so immersed in their story that you don't have the courage to know how or to step back and be able to look at the story as an outsider rather than stepping into their story and becoming just like them. It takes a lot of courage uh, to keep your place, to know your place. And then also compassion. Compassion, courage could mean, I don't care about you. I am detached and distanced from you. No, compassion is the ability to care appropriately. And so courage and compassion are absolutely essential. It'll keep you balanced, and that's part of the gift mix, along with perseverance and analytical ability. And then there is maturity, and that is a fundamental gift from God uh, maturity is a gift from all these are gifts from God, but maturity is a gift from God. And we cooperate with God giving us that gift by growing in our knowledge of Scripture, learning how to walk in the Spirit, uh, learning how to take God's Word from academia, classical knowledge, and to apply it originally. That's all a part of what it means to mature. And so there are six. The question here is how would you rate yourself on these things? Analytical ability perseverance, courage, compassion, and Christian maturity. And then finally, here is number seven, and that is listening skills. In order to be innovative, in order to help people, you have to be able to listen. And I just did a direct video message for our community this past week. I do uh, five video messages a week for our supporting community. They are on the private forum of our website, it's the people who support our ministry. They have access to this additional training, and, and it's not mastermind students. I mean, they access the direct messages too, but it's also for those who support our ministry. And one of the direct video messages that I did this week is on listening skills, and I mentioned four uh, things that we need uh, in order to mature in biblical counseling and to continue to grow in innovation and deepening our understanding and practice of God's Word. And so those four listening skills are uh, what I call, and these are just words. You, you can change the words if you wish. That's not important, but the concept's important. One is macro listening. Macro listening is like looking through a, a tube and stepping into their story, knowing what they know from their perspective. And that's why I say it's looking through a tube. So there's no peripheral vision. You're just really dialed in on them. You don't want to miss anything that they are saying. You want to listen from their chair, from their eyes. You want to, to not just listen to the words that they're saying to you, but you also want to hear the genesis of those words, which is in their hearts. And so you listen at two levels as you're doing this micro listening, trying to really dial in on their story. And then number two, there's macro listening. And this is the ability to see what they don't see or to discern what they have yet to discern about themselves, what they have yet to discern about other people, or what they have yet to discern about God's potential work in their lives, knowing that sometimes God brings trouble uh, to us, as Peter told us in 1 Peter 2.21, as Paul told us in Philippians 1.29, as Paul told us in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, we don't want you to be ignorant of the trouble that came to us in Asia, 
Uh, but God was teaching us not to rely on ourselves, but to rely on him who raises the dead. And so macro listening is essential because if you only listen in the micro, like you're looking down a tube, then you will miss what God's potential work is in their lives. And you'll have a weak theology of suffering. So there's micro listening, there's macro listening, and then there's pneumatic listening. I've already talked about this, and this is the illuminating power of the Spirit of God operating in our minds with the Word of God. And as I said earlier, there's a subjective element to that, which is why we have a fourth element of listening, and that is called scriptural listening. It's the most vital of all. As all this data goes through the filter of God's Word for either affirmation or denial— And so those are the four areas of listening, and the question is, would you assess yourself on those four areas? How well do you do? What areas can you grow? And so the question comes, why has there been, and of course I'm the one that said it, and you may disagree with my point, but why has there been so little innovation in the last couple of decades in the biblical counseling movement? Why is it a a problem that it has lost some momentum and it has started to flatten out? I don't know all the reasons that we're not as innovative as we used to be, but I do want to put forth a few ideas, and I have seven of them as to why we're not as innovative as we used to be. One of those is that everyone has a voice today through social media. The skilled and the amateur can say anything that they want without any filter whatsoever. And so, it used to be you would get a journal of biblical counseling from David Pallison, and you couldn't wait to hear from David. And there were so many, so few voices out there. And so you, it was easy to dial in on one voice, two voices, three. You get a book from someone, an article from someone, and, and it was great. And it was really pushing the biblical counseling narrative forward. Today, everybody and their brother has a voice on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, blogs, podcasts, my podcast, <laughs> my video, YouTube. Everybody has a voice today. And because of the just the sheer amount of data, uh, it is easier to hear all the bad counsel because it seems like well, there is more of that proportionally uh, than good counsel, good advice. And so one of the reasons that we're losing our innovation is that there are, there are no giants in the land. I mean, everybody's a little person, and there's millions of us, and so there's so many voices uh, in the culture today. Number two, some folks have imbibed on social constructs and vain philosophies, and a few of those that have imbibed on it don't realize it. Uh, And and that is a a mission creep that happens, uh, and it's so subtle that we don't see it happen. And I understand that. Uh, I mean, we're seeing it in our culture with the the sexual revolution that's been going on for 50 years, Uh, but seems to be accelerating now. And and people who, I mean, there's many Christians that don't struggle with homosexuality now, but uh, we would just be horrified 50 years ago. Uh, But that's that that philosophical creep that happens in our culture, well, it can happen in the biblical counseling movement too, as some folks uh, maybe ignorantly or unwittingly imbibe on social constructs and vain philosophies. That's number two. Number three, there are some folks who believe that education is the key to innovation. 
Uh, that ec- education is everything. Now, that is something that has really been put forth in our uh, culture. And you see it like almost every time that there's some kind of cultural catastrophe, somebody is talking about that we just we, we, we've got to do better at our schools. We've got to do better with education. I mean, they don't talk about character, uh, for example, but education is the panacea in our culture. And there could there are people, <clears throat> excuse me, within the biblical counseling movement that see innovation and education as synonymous. And so they pursue academia, but they have very little connection to the realities of life on the ground. And this is what I was talking about earlier, the difference between a theorist and a practitioner. Uh, there can be a recognizable gap there. Number four, some sincere folks have been through difficult things and they, they sincerely want to make a difference. But in some of these situations, they they fail to see how a burden does not always equal ability or qualification. A burden for something does not make you qualified for something. And there's a lot of people who have gone through a lot of hurt, and they sincerely want to help, but they just aren't qualified to do so at a the level that I'm talking about here. Number five. A few folks are afraid or insecure to take a stand, whether in counseling, counseling someone, they don't want to tell them what they're thinking when they need to with compassion, but they lack the courage. Some people are afraid to take a stand or they are afraid to speak against uh, those who bring inferior ideas into the counseling world. And so there's an insecurity among us. And number six, simply put, some Christians are just not good biblical counselors. Not at this level. That's kind of tied to everybody having a voice where everybody has access to biblical counseling. And I've talked about this a thousand times. That certification doesn't equal qualification, so I'll stop there. Number seven, there are some bad actors that want to see biblical counseling infiltrated with their secular ideas. And so this is episode 425. I've given you a list of seven ways biblical counselors can uh, innovate. I've also given you seven possibilities as to why uh, we have dulled down biblical counseling, and I'm sure you could add to that list as well. And then I want to wrap up by uh, just asking the question, what can we do? And again, I want to list seven quick things here as I wrap up. What can we do? One of them is, would you work through the questions that I ask under each point of those seven reasons that were not innovative or seven reasons we could be innovative, depending on how you want to say it? But would you work through those questions that I ask? And you can find all of them in episode 425. Number two, would you have folks assess your theological depth and your counseling acumen? Assess your understanding of classical knowledge, meaning the Bible from an academic perspective, and then original knowledge, your ability to apply it in customizable way. Would you ask someone to assess your ability, both on the theological scale and also on the counseling scale? Number three, what are your deficiencies? As you listen to this, as you watch this, what are your deficiencies? Name them, claim them, and what is your plan to grow, to mature, to change? Number four, what is your ceiling? What are you good at doing when it comes to counseling? We all have a prescribed ceiling. What is your ceiling? For example, are are you a good friend and that is your ceiling? Praise God. Live inside that ceiling and be a good friend to whosoever will. Or do you have a potential 
ceiling that could be a formalized biblical counselor. Well, praise God for that, too. We're not better than anyone else, whatever our ceilings may be, but we want to know what our ceilings are, and then we want to grow up to those ceilings wherever they may be. Number five, what are your companions in biblical counseling? What are their views? This idea of companions and associations will give clues as to where you are presuppositionally, where you are with your worldview. I don't hang out with integrationists. I don't hang out with people who have those views. I don't talk to them, not in an intimate way. My closest network of friends are sufficiency of Scripture views. I don't go on forums with those who are integrated uh, as though I associate with them unless I'm given a full-throated response against their views, but I don't do that on social media, uh, excuse me, social media uh, anyway. Uh, so my companions speak to who I am, and my companions in the biblical counseling world are people who hold to a sufficiency of Scripture worldview. Number six, what are your motives? What are your motives? Do you want to help folks, or is there selfish ambition uh, in your life? Uh, there are some people uh, who want to be relevant. There are some people who want a platform because everybody has a voice. There is a temptation to selfish ambition. There's no question about it, whether it's in the biblical counseling movement or in the pastorate or in the corporation, Acme Corporation. Selfish ambition is a thing, and we can get off the mission of helping people because we see an opportunity to grow our reputation, to maintain our relevancy, to build some kind of structure or whatever. And so it's a genuine question to ask. I'm not judging your motives. I don't even know who I'm talking about here. Uh, but what are your motives? What are my motives? Then number seven, will you have a conversation with someone about all of these things? Again, this is episode 425, and the title of it is Seven Ways Biblical Counselors Can Innovate. I trust this has been helpful. If you are a supporting member of our ministry, you don't have to be. Don't support us at all. Don't want your support. That's not what this is about. But if you are a supporting member of our ministry, uh, then you have access to our private forums. And if you want to talk, some have this week, several. We want to continue that conversation. I am not omnipresent, and so I just can't have conversations on social media. I can't have conversations. I don't widen my, ap my social aperture uh, so broad to where I just talk to people uh, because I, I can't. Uh, there's too much going on here, and I have to recognize who, who my group is, and I want to build into them. And, of course, my family takes priority, uh, and so I have to balance my time schedule. And I don't have a problem with time management. It works out very well, but I just end up saying no to a lot of people uh, because I can only speak and be associated with so many people in a communicative way. Uh, but if you would like to talk about this, and if you are a supporting member of our ministry, please go on our private forums and let's talk. Let's have a conversation. Now, again, if you're not, that's fine. But I would encourage you to take this episode, take the podcast, the video, the show notes, uh, and then you have this conversation with a friend and truly assess yourself because I love biblical counseling. I, I love the idea of it. I love discipleship, and biblical counseling fits within the discipleship schema, and so I love biblical counseling. 
I want to protect it, but I also want to see it innovate. Uh, but in my view, I think it has flattened out for all the reasons that I've shared. But I think if we truly take just these seven things, and I'm sure you could add more, but if we take these seven things seriously, assess ourselves, assess each other, I think we can mature and then we can get back to being very innovative, not in an annexing way where we're spoiling the Egyptians, but in a deep and rich way uh, with precept boundaries, the sufficiency of Scripture, we can drill down and we can continue to mature as we bring these ideas continuously through the hermeneutical spiral to gain more and more depth and precision and insight in all things biblical counseling. This is Rick Thomas, Life Over Coffee. Thank you so much for joining me. You have been listening to Life Over Coffee with Rick Thomas. If you have a question for Rick, you can let him know by sending him a note through his website, rickthomas.net. That's rickthomas.net. Thanks for listening. Enjoy your coffee.